I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was obsessed with music when I was really, really little, like, well, not little, but maybe when I turned sort of 13 years old, and I found myself just, like, obsessing, and then I got, learned guitar, and I just started from there, and, you know, like, my whole high school, like, years were all just either, you know, I was either at school playing guitar at lunch, and then at home playing guitar after school, yeah, and just, I don't know. Played in a, a little band and did some gigs here and there. We tried to record ourselves with like one microphone in a room, and obviously it was with a slow speed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know that? <laughs> done some research. It's not a ba- it's not a bad name for a for it, a high school band. For a high school band, yeah, it was very funny. It was just like real sort of comedic. Like all all my friends in the band were all like you know quite funny sort of guys and it's actually really interesting uh like all the people in that band like so the drummer he has done like some music videos for us he did the last one for all or nothing um the other guitarist he lives in new york he's like a copywriter in advertising and works on it's a really big sort of like advertising campaigns these days and um and then uh, the other sort of guitarist, bass player, he's in a, he's in a band with Simon now called Total Pace, um, which is just like, yeah, like a, a Brizzy band that has like Luke Henry from Violent Soho in it as well. Um, it's like a kind of cool, fun, punk rock band and they just play some shows around Brizzy. They don't really like tour or anything like that, but yeah. So yeah, it's funny. High school bands and, you know, we're still friends with each other and everything like that it's funny to see where everyone goes like you never quite expect the path that everyone's going to go down and take yeah that's it it's um yeah it's it is interesting and i think it's funny because it's like in some ways everyone's sort of involved in some sort of something creative which is really good i think that's you know being a you know into creative creativity or a creative person it, it can be um a hard slog to sort of keep doing it over a whole lifetime especially when other things happen with like jobs or families and everything like that so you got to really yeah really stick at it and um yeah it's nice to see that people have sort of sort of you know still doing that um as much as they can i know that for me as well it's like i just yeah i'm stoked that i'm being able to still play still playing a band and still play music um as my like sort of main gig do you do you feel like you have to be consumed by music in order to do that in order to keep at it in that fashion when it can get tough as life progresses yeah i would say that's always been kind of a thing for me is to say that um the people who i think do who stick at musical have a really sort of have success what you'd call success in inverted commas um I think that they're all obsessed with music, a lot of them. And um, 
I think you have to be. You have to be sort of always chasing that, writing that song or chasing playing that one gig or, you know, always looking forward and not just sitting back and going, wow, we d- remember those years we played those shows or we did that one record. It's always like looking forward and be like, no, nah, I can do something better. I can do, you know, make something more or I can express myself in this way. And I think those people are the ones who just can have the ability to sort of keep going at it, even when it's tough, you know, like with COVID or, you know, if you're having a, yeah, say, if you, you know, I don't know a lot of people who have a family and then, you know, it's hard because you've got, got to make money to support everybody and then... Got to make a lot more money. Yeah, a lot more money. And <laughs> and unfortunately, in music, it is pretty tight. So, well, for some of us and, you know, I think that, yeah, you really got to, um, you really got to be obsessed with it to sort of keep pushing, um, pushing through it. So, yeah, definitely I agree with you there. Is that what drew you to making a double album or two halves of the one record in the sense that you'd made, you know, sing- a few single albums before and you need to keep pushing um, forward? I think it was more that we had so much music. You know, we had we had Lockie join the band and play live with us for, oh, it must have been two years and he had a bunch of ideas and so we were like, all right, let's get you to start writing songs with us. And I think I, for me, I um, I was sort of at the point where all my songs started sounding really, really similar, like in terms of the way that I was creating riffs or like song structures, they all started going, oh, I was like, oh, that's just really similar to what I, I've done before. It felt really familiar. But then when I started collaborating with Lockie and he was sending ideas, Simon would send ideas, and then I'd sort of piece together everything. I found that we really started to get in like a bit of a new sound. And it really, I don't know, for me, it was just a, re- a refreshing moment. We, and I, and I think because of that, we were writing so much. And that's why we did the double record. Um, it's just unfortunate because it was those two records were supposed to come out within a year. <laughs> and like that was the whole <laughs> point of it, right? It was supposed to be like, boom, here's one. And here's the second one. We actually finished recording number like part two the day that part one was released. So that was September 2019. Wow. So we've been sitting on this record for almost two years. Um, so we've obviously kept ourselves busy by writing more music, but it's it felt like there was this really good momentum and we did actually push it back. We were like, oh, we'll push it back. And so we did tour last year at the start of the year in Europe and then we got back to Australia and we're like all right um we'll get ready to put this next one out and then yeah everything stopped and so we're like uh, let's just wait until we can actually do shows um and that kept getting pushed back and back because shows are not looking like they're going to happen and then finally we're like we just have to put this thing out otherwise it's never going to see the light of day really, you know, and we're going to be bored with it. Um, so, this was kind of our last chance. We're like, we just got to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, took, it's taken way too long in my opinion, but it is what it is. <laughs> would Had you known that shows weren't going to be back for so long, would you have released it on the initial date, do you think, the first time around, like a year ago? Potentially. But then also in hindsight, like looking at some releases – it's really tough because some artists, I think, have done really, really well during the pandemic. And then other artists I've seen sort of put a record out that maybe just didn't hit home as much because, you know, maybe they were, they, usually they would do a show or like a tour on the back of it. And that would really sort of help get the, the wheels sort of turning with the record. And it feels a lot like, you know, some records came out you're like, oh, that's right. That was out last year, but I listened to it that month and then it's sort of that that was it. Whereas, you know, previous records from bands had put it out and it had taken like a little bit, like a month or two, and then it started to connect with people because of shows and stuff. So, yeah, it's hard to, you know, it is what it is, but it's. It, it, I think if we had known that we weren't doing shows, maybe we would have tried to just put it out and I don't know it's hard to say we actually did gigs in March um like small ones in Australia but they were really fun and loose and we're like okay sweet maybe things are coming back and then 
get to the middle of the year. Yeah, we're in the middle of our winter here, so you know you expect a bit more. But um, yeah, it's all looking like it's sort of back to square one a little bit, unfortunately. <laughs> It's all kind of a bit of luck in terms of dropping albums in COVID times. It's such a fine line when you land it. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I, I feel like that, um, yeah, has has worked well for some people. Like some people have, it's like their career has started during this thing where people haven't been able to see them, but they've got a great online presence and that's really helped them. And then hopefully that trends sort of, you know, that, that transfers into crowds at live shows and everyone would be excited to see them but yeah it's uh you know like anything it's always it's different for each each person and each artist when you were saying you finished uh two years ago now did you say you wrapped up recording september 2019 yeah almost two years was that in la you were recording yeah uh no that was in australia we did the first part in la and that was really just us wanting to do that like to go outside of australia and go to la and record and we had the opportunity to do it because Miro who was producing he has a studio in LA so we're like all right well let's just get an Airbnb and we'll fly over and you know it's gonna be a bit more money but it's sort of a fun thing to do where we can go over there and then there are certain opportunities that we got because you know we got to get Matt from the Bronx on that first part because we were in LA and he was able to just drive down to the studio um but then when we were getting to like doing what we wanted to do for the next one, we we were like, okay, what's our options? And we ended up just going back to the studio in in um, just north of Sydney here called The Grove. And we've done- Oh, yeah. Yeah. Scott Horsecross Studio. It is Scott Horsecross Studio. Yeah. 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 It's an amazing studio. And we've done so many records there. Like we did uh, Black Rat was done there. Bloody Lovely was done there. And now this one. Plus, we've done a couple other little sessions here and there. And it's just such a good studio. It has really good gear. It's a great vibe because everyone stays at the studio. So, you're kind of like, it's like a, you can imagine like a house and you sleep there and then you sort of walk and you go into the, you're in this live room kind of thing, like sort of open the big doors and then you're into the live room and the, stu- and the control room and everything's all there. And so, you're kind of like living the record the entire time. So, it's a really great environment. It's beautiful out there. So, yeah, we ended up going back out there and, yeah, it was awesome. Just, it was fun for us just to go to LA for that one time, just to, just to change it up a bit, just because we had been to, like, sort of doing the same thing here in Australia so much. But, um, you know, old habits die hard. You got to sometimes just go back to what, what you know really well as well. What did you learn from recording in LA that you then carried back into recording the second part of the record? Ooh, I think, um... I think for Lockie, look, like the one thing he's always said is that he he learned a lot because he was coming out of not really, never really doing records with us before. And so he got all everything when we got into LA. He learned everything. He got it all like how he wanted it. And then what he realized is when you get into the studio, things change. And, you know, the part that you thought was going to happen, it's like, oh, should we try something else or, you know, try and, and you end up, it's, everything's quite malleable. Um, and I think that was like a big learning thing for him. So, when we went in for the second part, he was like, I'm good. These are my parts. I think, they, but I'm open to what we're going to do. We can change stuff where we need to change stuff. For me, oh, it's hard. I don't know. I think it just, it was just, I think also working with Miro was like the biggest learning thing for me because I'd never recorded with Miro before. Um and we've been friends for for years and years and years. Um, but, uh, yeah, like working with him was like sort of on the first one, he was mixing in, in Los Angeles and sending me like an audio stream of him doing a mix, like sort of live. Um, and I would do the – I would sit there at a ca- – like we would be at a cafe and I'd just be like on Messenger just sort of sending him notes on like arrangement things or like, oh, this needs to come up here, you know, like sort of – and that was like a huge, like awesome sort of learning thing is like getting my point across via like sort of text message to Miro and then us discussing it. But then once we had that sort of picture painted for part one, part two was really easy because Miro was like, oh, I know exactly kind of where it needs to sit in terms of, you know, sonically and everything like that. So, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's, just, it's another record. So did, he mix the, did he mix the second album too? Yeah. The yeah. second part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he flew over to Australia and came to the Grove. Um, you know, he's from he's from Australia um, and actually via New Zealand, his family's in New Zealand. So he ended up coming home and seeing family and stuff as well. It was really great working with him. Awesome, um, really creative guy. So it's, um, yeah, I find every time we do a record, um, no matter who it's with, it's always great because you take away so much knowledge of what like the way that they work and um, the creative tools they use and the way like we sort of like approach making a record. Something that I think when I first started playing in bands, I dreaded recording because it's hard. And it's, it's like, it's not, a, you know, and now it's like all I want to do is just record stuff <laughs> and cause it, because I've learned so much and I'm like, no, this is actually, I see why this is so fun because you just, yeah, it, you just can immerse yourself in it and it's like, you know, it's, it's, you got to study it and you've got to like figure out there's so many like problem solving within writing music and recording it to get it to sound what you want it to sound like. Whereas live, it's kind of like, cool, learn the parts, don't fuck them up and turn it up loud and you should get a pretty good result. But they're completely different beasts. I think, you know, it's, um, my friend and I have been, we've been working on new stuff recently and he, he always had, had this an analogy about it. He's like, recording music or, and, and listening to those records and then watching a live show is so different. It's almost like going to the theatre and watching a movie. And it's like you don't go to the theatre and expect to see the VFX that you get in a movie. But also like the theatre is like a kind of, you go see the show maybe once or twice or, you know, it, 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 that's sort of like, and every time it's going to be different. And then you go to, a, you watch a movie and you love watching that movie over and over because of how much time and effort's been put into it to sort of, you know, get it to where it is. And I think for a really long time, we were really hung up on the idea that we needed to write or record a record that sounded exactly like what we are live or how will we ever play it live. And I think now we're sort of giving up on that idea. And we're like, let's just create something that's really, really ultra creative um, and hopefully gets people to listen over and over and over again on record. And then when we do a live show, then we, it's like we do something else that's, you know, those songs, but they're done in a, in a live sense and they're, you know, exciting and it's loud and it's full on, it's in your face. And that's kind of, you know, they're two different sort of beasts. And once we sort of got to that point, we're like, okay, well, this is, it makes recording so much more fun. And then also makes a live show really fun because you get to be creative and go, all right, well, how will we get our, our, our way around what we've done on the record and sort of get that in the live sense as well. Yeah, it allows you to experiment more and kind of push the sound in further directions, like to either end of the spectrum. That's right, yeah. It's interesting as well to look at it in the context of the albums you've done before because Black Rat is like a, a nighttime record almost and then on Bloody Lovely you have the idea of the bar that's kind of at the centre of it and the songs are circulating around. What do you feel like is the aesthetic through line on these two albums for you? Was there a similar thing? It's It was actually quite at heart. And I think that's why in the album cover, it's really kind a of- Mad a, Max. A, yeah, it's a bit of a mishmash. And I think it's because we had so many ideas. We didn't know where we wanted it to go. Like there's, like there's you know, the first part has like punk songs, indie songs, um, sort of really some of our lightest music, you know, like kind of almost, you know, indie sort of alternative, dan like sort of almost dancey in some ways. And then part two, well, it's got more groove orientated stuff. It's a little slower, but then it's also got some quite like doomier stuff that's, um, you know, it sort of holds a bit more weight. Um, and just going back to what I originally said about like having Lockie join the band and write with us, I think it's because we just had all those ideas flowing at once and it was just like this big mishmash of, of songs and not only that, it's like anything that he sent and then I wrote on, we all, we, we, him and I sort of work in almost opposite ways in terms of like the way we hear music. I hear music quite major um, 
and he hears music really, really minor and, and in minor key, like sort of keys and stuff. So, when he sends me something, he'll like write a lead guitar line that's really minor, but I've got like a major vocal hook over the top of it and it's sort of, sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes it's like, well, that's what makes it sort of interesting is that it because, you know, it sort of feels sad and happy at the same time and it's a little bit like two-faced. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think that this one, there was no sort of direction um, it's just a collection, a collection of of songs, and we had we wanted to we had twenty songs. We we're like, let's just do a double record, but let's stagger it because this day and age, it's like a record only gets a few months of like your time in the sun to sort of really try and capture your audience, and then people are moving on to the next one. Oh, when when's the next record? When's the next one? Like, oh man, that took us like years to make. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I mean, even less in COVID times, like what we were just saying, like you were saying you would maybe only like get into an album for a month. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it totally. The cycle was sped up. That's right. I feel like it really was. And and also because I think there's, because of the internet, I think there's so much like more music out there. Um, there's you got access to more music because of streaming. So, it's easy to just go, oh, I totally missed that record. Um, whereas I remember, you know, when being at, at university and at high school and stuff and getting a CD and being obsessed with that CD and just listening to it over and over again and go camping and it just be the just on repeat that one album. There are some records that I still do that with, um, but usually it's more albums that I like to go to sleep to <laughs> and that's like, all right, this is my bedtime music and I just put like that record on and I love that listening to that record when I'm falling asleep. So, Get a bit of Elliot Smith on. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm <laughs> a huge Beach House fan. So, some of their records. Nice. Yeah. And um, Kurt Vile, Smoke Ring for My Halo is also a really good one. Um, but yeah, it's like those records that they like, they've stuck with me because I've just sort of gone, oh, this is awesome to wind down to. Um, whereas I think some of my more like psych up records, you know, I listen to. I think I listened to a lot more intensely over a longer period of time when I was younger, when I was buying CDs. Um, and now I sort of, yeah, I listened to that record like a few times and then I'm like, oh, cool, this band's got a record out. So I listened to that for like a month and then uh, and so on. And so on. And everyone's always putting out so much music and, you know, it's kind of, it feels like everyone's, the pressure's there to, to be constantly creating something and putting it out. Yeah, it's kind of returned to what it used to be because even if you look back to like there is the kind of early 90s with like Sonic Youth or something, like the amount of albums they used to put out, I could be like one every year or whatever. And then we kind of moved away for that a little bit towards the end of the 90s and into the 2000s and it's kind of come back around in the last five years to an album a year pretty much again. That's or an album it. every couple of years. Yeah, and I mean, you just got to look at, you know, you look at bands like King Gizzard and you're like, how? <laughs> <laughs> it's like some sort of like crazy wizardry going on there because they're they're just churning them out, and it's I don't know. I mean, they're on another platform, another world, like in terms of the um, amount of great music they put out. But it, it's just like I sit there, go, it is insane. But they've got like it's like a almost like, feels like it's like a factory. Like we're doing this, and they have like a queue of thing, and they record it themselves. They get people to do the videos, and then. They just put it out and they have like a full, they know how it all works and it's done. There's no extra sort of interference or like, nah, the schedule's this and you got to wait until here and just do it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's worked so well for them. They've just, yeah, done amazing work with that. So it's, uh, yeah, when you look at those bands, it makes you go, okay, we should really get off our asses and try and get music out there <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> That idea you mentioned a few moments ago as well with you and Lack and how you come at it from like major and minor and kind of happy and sad, these either end, these are the kind of opposing sides to it. Would Fired Up be a good example of that? The way you kind of have that bright start on the guitar and it almost feels optimistic, but then you kind of come in with the stadium rock that's very kind of heavy and pushing down on you. Yeah, that's a funny song. It That was actually probably supposed to be on part one, but it took ages to get right and it was mostly because there's a couple of songs that were just all about the key and trying to figure out where it all fit in a key and I think 
originally I wrote that song on just like a little nylon string guitar acoustic and I was like, that this is it. And then I had like all these different variations for the choruses um, and I can't remember what bit Lockie wrote in that. Um, I don't know if I actually wrote the the sort of like I wrote the um, the the verses and the and the chorus and stuff, and then he wrote the solo. But I can't remember if we actually did any extra stuff in the chorus that he wrote. But yeah, so to me that one is all sort of is maybe like more in like a lot of my ideas. Um, but then if you go and listen to or like Positive Rising, like the final track of the record, that's all Lockie. That's like he, wow. yeah, so he did it. He did everything on that. Um, I just did the vocal. <laughs> so, I was like, and, but he just sent me a track and was like, what do you reckon? I was like, oh, I'll just try and do a vocal. And just did that. And that was like the first vocal idea that I did. And we, it just was one of those songs where it just stuck. And I was like, this is going to be a cool, cool way to finish the album. Um and that one there is like quite like haunting and and dark and brooding and stuff. So yeah, we sort of just we're not really tied to everyone having this is your job in the band. You can Lockie's an amazing drummer as well. So he writes drum parts, um, he writes guitar parts. Um, vocally, like I get the guys to sort of like if I'm stuck, is like just send me any ideas that you've got. Um, Simon writes guitar parts uh, and, and obviously drum parts as well. So, and then when it comes to arrangements, you know, we all work together to sort of get it to get, um, you know, where we want it to be. But um, yeah, we're not. I don't. We're, ne- we're never like, oh, I'm the guitarist. I must write all the guitar parts. Or, you know, it's always it's a very open sort of forum here at Camp DZ. You can, <laughs> anyone can do anything. So, did you have Positive Rising from quite early on in the kind of construction? Yeah, I think that one, I'd have to go back and look at the demos when it was written, but I'm pretty sure that was done towards, I think we had it done when we were recording part one, I'm pretty sure. Um, But we decided to save it for the second part. I think All or Nothing was also done um, before part one was finished. Really, the only songs that were done, like had been written in com- like completely after part one were Golden Retriever, which was like a real last minute thing that I just was, I wrote at my friend's house and I was like, oh, this is just a really simple, fun song and it might be a nice addition to the album. And then Swept Up, which is, I had the idea for ages but that was we didn't actually do anything with that until we in the studio, and I think we had a couple of other songs that we were going to record, and we were sort of umming and ahhing. I was like, well, "What about this idea for this one?" And everyone was like, "Oh, actually, that's really cool." And I was like, "Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to show you guys this ages ago, but you know." <laughs> and then we sort of d- we built it up and we developed it a little a lot more in the studio. And then it, I think for me, that actually ended up being one of my favorite tracks on the record because it's so different to some of the other stuff. It's sort of, it's got this woozy blues thing going on. Um, but then it's also got like, you know, the arpeggiator and stuff throughout the chorus. So, it feels quite sort of, you know, futuristic-esque electronic thing in there. Um, but I think those two songs were really the only ones that were written in in full after part one everything else was there it might have been just like we haven't got the chorus quite right um so we'll push that one to the part two and then we had a couple other songs like now we'll save those for part two we'll save that for part two and then um and then part one was like yeah we've got these nine songs they all feel really good let's go and just record those um yeah and get them done i think it was like the main thing for us was that after after black rat we actually toured so much. We did. We were touring the UK a lot. Um, we toured a bunch of times over in the states. We actually stopped writing, and it was when we when it came time to write "Bloody Lovely." It took us ages to get started, and it sort of rattled us a little bit. We were a bit like, "Oh man, have we lost our groove?" Or, I don't. I can't really write. Like nothing's sort of coming to me, and it's not feeling right. And we actually did a whole week. I think all of like five days at the Grove recording, we 
walked away with two songs. One was Blood on My Leather and another was like a song we've never released. And then there was like three or four ideas that just never and then we were like, oh, what a waste. What a waste of like going into the studio and not being ready. And so we kind of we then we ended up getting bloody lovely done enough that we're like we'll never stop writing songs. And you go on tour, or you come home, you go straight back into writing songs because once we sort of stopped and we lost our sort of our groove a little bit, it really, I don't know, it really put the brakes on. So when we'd finished Bloody Lovely, we went straight in and started write, like writing stuff for Positive Rising, not knowing what we wanted it to be. We were just writing songs. So we had, you know, 40, 50 songs and then we ended up slowly getting it down and we're like, all right, these 20. But... um yeah, we just had so many. We're like, all right, well, let's just start. Let's start recording. And it's the same thing now. Like we're working on another record at the moment, and I think we started last year. And you know, well, we finished recording September two thousand nineteen. So we would have started, you know, just after that. Um, and yeah, there's probably thirty or forty songs. <laughs> and now we're gonna need another double. Yeah, I don't know. I think we're just going to stick it to stick to uh, the classic sort of ten or eleven this this time, maybe, or maybe I don't know. I don't even know how we're going to release it. The next sort of stuff, if we just want to do singles or something like that. But anyway, it's been a whole another learning experience as well. Like the way we're writing this one has been. It's like the longest recording session we've ever done. We're just doing it in bits and pieces. We're doing it remotely. We're using bits of stuff we recorded at home and just sort of piecing things together. And um, yeah, it's making it as another whole learning experience again. It's interesting as well. You mentioned that Golden Retriever and was it Swept Up was the other one? Mm. Were the two that were written following part one and the two that were written in full because they both bring different flavors to part two and give it and balance it out slightly differently than if they weren't there. Was that partly what was factoring into your mind when you were writing them? Were you thinking about the context of the album as a whole? I usually do that. So, hopefully it was there in the back of my mind to go, we need this, a different sound. Um, I think Golden Retriever, I think it was just because, like, it's funny, I wrote a lot of these songs, like, on acoustic guitar, which I don't, when we first started, nothing was written on acoustic guitar, but a lot of this was sort of written on acoustic guitar because it's it's a lot more sort of singy song things rather than being really, really riffy. Um, But... I think with that, just because it came together quite organically, that song, I was like, I put it forward and the guys were like, yeah, sweet, that's a a good song that we can put on there. Um, Swept Up, though, was definitely like, we're in the studio, like, this would be a great addition because it is so different from everything else. But it also feels like it it should be on the album. I guess it, in some ways, it's the ballad of the record. It's like a ballad with a distorted guitar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I always do sort of look at that thing where it's, you know, that you need to have certain things on a record to make it a, a, a sort of a bit of a journey. I think I think we've always tried to do that. We've always tried to have those songs in there that sort of take people by surprise or are a little bit more, you know, softer or there's like or go all out and a really really heavy um and yeah going through that again at the moment with (laughs) the next one it's like (laughs) what else do we need on this thing what else does it need to be one of those records that go yes i love listening to this entire thing there's not a skip song um because there i always remember some records back in the 90s and 2000s is always a skip song or you know it's like why why is that even on there um, so I'm pretty, you know, conscious about making sure that there's hopefully nothing on there that's just, that people are like, ah, but then again, who knows these days, people just sort of listen to their playlists. I feel like a lot of people still listen to records or albums on Spotify. Right? That's good. Yeah. And I mean, vinyl, I love getting vinyl anytime I can and putting a vinyl on and listening to that at home rather than putting it on, you know, the Sonos or anything like that. It's, it's, it's quite nice to sort of sit there and I mean when I first when I moved into my new place and I set up the record player I actually didn't have speakers attached so I was just listening through the amplifier through my headphones I was like wow it sounds amazing <laughs> it's incredible I was like 
yeah, that definition you just don't get um, once it's been compressed and you know sent through a Bluetooth to a, like a Bluetooth speaker, and you're just like, okay, yeah, it sounds like the record, but like listening on, you know, proper headphones, it's really nice. Whose um, whose dog was it in the video for Golden oh, Fever? Um, so there was a there was like five or six dogs there. They were the <laughs> um, Joe who who did the video for us. I think he just did a call out. Maybe it was like a friend who had one of them, and then he it was like a golden retriever um like club <laughs> of people so none of the dogs were trained so that's they were kind of hard chaos. to work with yeah it was chaos but it was awesome chaos because i mean if you're a fan of dogs like we all are we all it's like this is awesome we get to just hang out with really lovely dogs all day and they get you know give them pats and stuff so it's quite heartwarming was it as much chaos as the video for make yourself mad <laughs> yeah smashing uh, up a printer yeah well I mean do you, I, I think I think it's kind of one of those things that I don't know if many people actually get the reference it's uh, it's office space yeah yeah that's it yeah, um, yeah. such a like one of those movies that I think I grew up with and I'm still such a big fan of um, it's like Big Lebowski like one yeah, of those kind of 90s yeah. slightly stonery comedies that's it yeah and we I think because we're essentially like we made that video ourselves and we're like you know label wanted a video like we're just gonna do it ourselves that's okay and they're like uh okay and we just had the idea and we just went and filmed it we got size sister katie to film it for us and we just were watching on our phones like watching that scene from the movie okay how do they do that okay and then we did did the shot like okay what's the next shot okay that shot um so it was the whole thing was done like that scene in like a couple of hours and then we just set up at, in Simon's apartment in Brisbane and just put up these big black screens so that we could kind of have like a black room and just played, you know, like as if we were sort of just guys hanging out after work kind of jamming rather than being like a big professional thing. Um, so, it was actually one of the easiest videos to make. Making videos can be pretty um, time-consuming and, and sort of hard. It's pretty hard work, especially because a lot of the time we would do like a couple of videos in a in a few days. So, it's just like constantly filming and it's really long. And it's like that one was actually surprisingly easy to do. And we did it ourselves. It was all quite, you know, ran quite smoothly. Um, but yeah, smashing out the printer was fun. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was cool. It was also cool to play a character because you kind of knew the way that they were on screen. So, you're like, okay, well, I've got to kind of get myself into their, the way that their character was um, rather than just playing yourself or a goofy version of yourself, which is mostly what people do in videos. It's kind of like, you know, all our videos are all a bit silly. Um, we try not to be too serious in a lot of them. So, we're just, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Were you method acting? Were you in character for the full day? <laughs> the entire day, yeah. <laughs> Walking around with my fists like, clenched and listening to hip-hop everywhere. No, I wasn't. But it was, you know, it was cool because I think we where we went and we watched the movie, the whole movie before. I think, like, just, like, sat around, had drinks and watched that. And the next day we went and shot it. And it was all very last minute. Like, we bought the printer on, like, Facebook Marketplace or something, like, Katie. And she's like, oh, we're going to go drive out and pick up this printer. It's, like, th for 30 bucks. So, we had to get, like, 30 bucks cash out because no one has cash anymore. And then <laughs> go and, like, <laughs> give this person 30 bucks for this printer and take it out to, like, a reserve and find a good place for the shot and then just, you know, smash it up. Buy a baseball bat. Like, <laughs> who has a baseball bat? No one has a baseball bat. Not here in Australia. <laughs> Cricket bat, maybe. <laughs> It's interesting because if you look at Office Space, it kind of touches upon, or a lot of it centered around this idea of the isolation of like 90s corporate culture and bureaucracy and all that. And that song is almost looking at the isolation that the internet gives you. Was that where you drew the connection for the video? No, not really. It was more just an idea. But the song is is lyrically, I mean, when I f was writing the, the idea for the track, I think I was just, I think I maybe I got to the point where I was like, I need to, to give up. I need to give up Facebook or something. It felt like when I first started, when I first joined social media, um, was MySpace, and we had the uh, the band was on MySpace, and it was actually different beast. It was a different beat, and it was actually fun. Like it was really fun because people would get on and be like, "I love your band," like, and they talk about music, and it was like a, it was a bit more of a community. 
and it was actually really funny because when we first started touring, one of the first tours we did was with this band called Crystal Castles from um, Canada. And for us, we were like, whoa, they're like a proper huge band. They were coming over to Australia um, doing shows at like 1,000 capacity shows. And so, like, and we got the tour out of nowhere. We were like, oh. And one of the guys from Crystal Castle was like, oh, um, thanks for doing the tour. Um, we got a list of bands to choose from and we saw that you guys had us in your top friends. So we, <laughs> so we were like, um, they're like, so we thought, oh, well, they're at least fans of our band, so we should get you guys on. And I was like, oh, this is like a cool thing that maybe MySpace has done for us. <laughs> like it's like having that platform had really helped us. Um, but yeah, anyway, going forward and just being like on social media for you know a, the better part of your life, I started like sort of resenting it a little bit and was seeing all these people get quite angry and upset at stuff that they didn't actually have to take note of or take, even look at. Um, and that's where that idea for that song was. It was kind of just maybe people wouldn't be so angry if they didn't see everything that made them angry all the time. You're constantly seeing things that make you angry. It's going to make you upset. Um so, yeah, I sort of, I think I was getting angry at the people getting angry. So, I was like, I just need to give it up a little bit. And, um, yeah, I took a step back from it a little bit. And to be honest, it's, been, it's one of the best things I ever did is sort of, you know, I still use social media, but I think I just try to limit myself and, and not be on there like all the time and, yeah, really help. The only things I miss, I miss birthdays now. <laughs> Because that would seem to be the thing. I miss, I miss birthdays. I was like, oh, is there a way to just like sync up people's birthdays so it comes up in my calendar? No, unfortunately not. So yeah. you got to be on all the time. Yeah, I know. they want. That's, that's how they rope you in with the birthdays thing. Birthdays and toes. That's the two things you always that's miss. It. Yeah, I know. And, and it, it, you know, like that's the other thing is I used to, when I was at university, I used to love getting the street press, which is like, you know, they were really big here in Australia for a while, but it sort of like died out. But it was, you know, it was like the free magazine or newspaper that was all music related. Brisbane had three, I think, of them. And they come out weekly and they just had so much good stuff, like great articles, um, interviews, reviews of albums, reviews of live shows, and then gig guide. And so, you know, when you're an 18-year-old at uni and you just like every weekend or every, you know, every night that you possibly can be out, you're out and you're watching shows and it was just such a great way to find stuff. And now I feel like, yeah, it's really easy to miss stuff because everything has to be online, but then it all sits in this algorithm, which means that if you're not really connected with that band at all times, you might miss some of the shows. And yeah, we see it all the time. We always, we're like, we'll play in a city and then people are like, when are you coming to Liverpool? Like, mate, we were there literally two days ago. <laughs> Can you, you missed it. We're not coming back for ages. So, yeah. It's funny. I mean, it's because it's like Instagram. I think it only shows the stuff that you post, like 10% of the people that follow you or something. Yeah, that's it. And so, it's, yeah, I know. It's weird. I mean, it's all, to be honest, like, because I, I use Instagram like a fair bit. Um, mostly just looking at audio stuff like audio gear and stuff like that but I, I it's it's interesting like i just i've noticed like recently the amount of ads for buying stuff and i'm like oh this is cool wait a minute this is all just like targeted ads at me <laughs> just for my shopping they've got you yeah they got me i was like oh, and it's all like cool you know audio gear so <laughs> it's, yeah Interesting. Interesting how how it has it's all sort of changed from being just a fun place to you know connect with people who are like minded or you know into the same music and I mean like forums. I, I like that. I guess still, but yeah, Reddit. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Reddit. It's a lot of good stuff on there. I mean, there are some really positive sides to it too because I saw that you know we're talking about make yourself mad. There, you shared like the chords and the lyrics to it before it came out and got people to do their own interpretations of it. Hmm. That w- what did you what did you learn about the song from doing that? Ah, so that actually is really interesting because I found that people were actually not far off what the 
like in some ways we're not far off the the melody but also some of the ones i heard i was like wow it's so different like the way that your brain puts those words around those chords or you know the way that you phrase those chords in terms of like the timing within the you know each time every 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 sort of beat the way you, where you're moving it is different and and i loved hearing how people sort of you know how they sort of built it with just those basic things. I mean, we were originally going to give people the riff, like a tab of the riff and everything. And we sort of like, ah, oh, it might just be too much. Like if you're giving every, like everything like that to every, like all the parts, it gets a bit confusing. We're like, let's just stick to the chords and the lyrics. And then people have like way more room to move with their interpretation. But yeah, it was cool. And I was so glad that people did it, you know, just had, had a crack and, the people who did it, they sort of, they wrote to us and they're like, oh, um, it was really fun. It was really fun to just like have lyrics and, and chords there already and then just figure out what I want to do rather than have to write the lyrics or, you know, come up with the, the progression. Um, they could just just make music um, that was sort of fresh and new. Um, so, yeah, it was a nice little experiment. You know, when the people were doing it, it was interesting for you to see how the melody kind of wrapped itself around the chords in a different way. Is that something that ever happens for you when you're writing? Will it always be the first melody that attaches itself to it or will you often kind of shift it and sculpt it? Oh, so much shifting and sculpting. <laughs> it's uh, sculpting. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it can be a really long winded process. Um, sometimes it's the first thing that comes to your head is the best. And then I'll go around the world until I get back to exactly where I was. I was like, yeah, the first one was the best. Um, other times, yeah, there's a lot of chopping and changing and ideas morph and it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think like it Fired Up and All or Nothing were two songs where they really, they morphed a lot and All or Nothing is one that started where it's at now and went so many different directions and then ended up back to where it was and then Fired Up started totally different keys and different choruses and different parts here and there and then slowly got to where it is now, um, which I think in the end it's like it was more of me just simplifying everything because I feel like I over, I was like, now I need a new bit, now I need a new bit, now I need this other bit and in the end it was like, oh, no, this is just, let's just simplify it and then there's way more space for the melody to shine and come through and then have your moments of... Um, you know, something interesting, which is more like in the lead guitar, there's like a, a guitar solo and, um, you know, we added like some synthesizers and stuff at the end. Yeah, it's never, it's not always the first time, but I do like the idea is like when I'm writing, I kind of just get on the mic, like especially a lot of the time with an idea, if I, as soon as I get the idea really, really rough down, I'll just jump on the mic and just ad lib whatever I can. And I find that's the best way to sort of come up with vocal melodies because you're not really thinking about what you want to say. You're just saying words or, you know, sounds that sort of sound nice or sound good to you or, or like are interesting. And from that, you can then build your vocal um, and, and come up with ideas that sort of fit into that of what you've sort of ad-libbed. And, and that's like one thing I, I work on with Lockie a lot as well. Like he'll send me a, a song and I'll be like, I'll have a go and sometimes he'll send me something and I'll be like, oh man, what do you reckon about this? And then it was like, oh, that's great. Let's, and then we just, everything moves. And other times he's like, what do you reckon about that song? And I was like, oh, yeah, I tried, <laughs> I tried a fair bit, but nothing really, nothing happened. It's kind of like, there's always needs to be that little spark. And then once the spark goes, it can really like kickstart everything. And then you just like, all right, and then you just move. Um, but just constantly trying to overcome and get through something can be really, I don't know, it breaks you down and you get a bit like, oh, I'm just sick of that song. I'm sick of hearing the same thing over and over again, if, unless it sort of happens quickly. Um, the flip side is that you might have something that you got stuck on and then leave and then six months later you go back to it and something just comes to you straight away and you're like, oh, now that's sounding exactly what I've, like, I was wanting to do so long ago but maybe you heard something that sort of inspired you a little bit or 
maybe another song you were writing, that idea has found its way into what you're doing. And I think that that really is really interesting to me is like that you should never like just completely let go of an idea because you never know when you're going to get a new bit of inspiration and all of a sudden things, that little sparks there and then you just, it just goes. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any songs on on these records that sort of did that. Um, but there's, you know, I think one of them might actually be Skeleton Key because I wrote that riff for Skeleton Key, the the main sort of bass line. I wrote that like years ago, like on a, in a tour van. I was like sitting around in a, with a guitar in a tour van and I just had nothing... I don't know how to use it for ages. And then I think one day I just started like almost like not sort of rapping, but like quite like wordy sort of vocals over top. And then it all started happening. And then, yeah, came up with that little chorus. And then the last thing that came of that to that song was the, was the, the riff that you sort of get after the chorus. Um, so, yeah, I'm always, like, holding on to all my demos and just little bits and pieces. And that's why there's, you know, like, hundreds and hundreds of ideas that are just there. And you go through every so often. I'll go through and let, listen to everything. Like, all my, open up all my, like, my sessions and sort of go, oh, yeah. Hmm, okay, maybe I'll just try something on that. Or, like, something that just might all of a sudden inspire you to get up and try and sing something. Um, because, you know, for me, I think the hardest thing is the vocal. It's the hardest thing to get right. Not not only the lyrics, but just like trying to get it to feel comfortable and and natural without, you know, pushing too hard. I've always loved everything, like a lot of, well, I've always loved a lot of stuff like Damon Albarn's done. And I think the reason why is because so many of the songs that he's worked on sound so natural. Like he doesn't sound like he's trying hard at all. And it just like that. And to me, that's like, oh, that feels... It's, it's like effortlessly cool, but I know that there's been a lot of work has gone into like sort of creating that song and getting it to where it is. But it, I think it's because he doesn't have a huge range, so he kind of has to build the song around it. Well, that's it, and I, and that's what I love is that he he doesn't. He still makes melodies are so catchy, and I think that's one thing I I find recent more recently. I've been trying to just stick in my lane a little bit more vocally and not go all over the shop or like go really, really high and then really, really low. It's more like trying to, because one thing I, I do believe is um the majority of people, you know, who will sing along to you will find it easier to sing along to a song that sort of is in their range as well. Like, or it sort of sits, you know, it's like comfortable to sing. I mean, everyone, uh, is it, is it, she calls Chandelier? No. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, by Sia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, that's a great. That is an amazing song. It's an amazing melody. There's not many people out there who could nail that, <laughs> <laughs> especially after a few pints. <laughs> do you have uh, do you have Louis Theroux in Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you never seen the video of him singing along to? No, I haven't. He can do full falsetto and get all the way up. <laughs> really amazing. Love it. Just imagine Louis Theroux singing Chandelier. <laughs> I see. And that's, I'm gonna look that yeah. up. I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> you were talking about skeleton t- skeleton keys a few moments ago, because it almost feels like what's the song on? What's the first song on part one as well? Um, hi everyone. Yeah, which is like the, the build first up. Song on part. Yeah, it's like this long, like Queens of the Stone Age type mm. intro, which could almost fit on this record, and you can almost put skeleton keys on the last one as well. Like you could swap them and it would still work. Yeah, I think so. It's um, I think "Hi Everyone" was actually a funny one because it was more of an idea than a song. And I had all these, and I've done a few song like well, songs like that over the years where it's been more of like, this isn't supposed to have a chorus or this isn't supposed to. It's just like a a, a thing. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't give you what you like normally want from a song. Whereas Skeleton Key, I, I treated it more like a, you know, it, it's a long, it takes a while to get to its sort of point, but because it, it's a build up. Um, but yeah, I treated it a bit more like a song. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I really do hope that a lot of those songs can be felt, feel interchangeable. And I also 
really hope that, you know, some people out there might go and listen from part one all the way through to the end of part two. Um, because I did that when we'd finished part two and I was like, was even when we had the demos, I was listening to all of them kind of in the sort of in the track listing that I was thinking it was going to work. And I really liked it. I was like, it sort of starts out this sort of building ominous sounds and, you know, kind of an introduction to the records. And then it closes with this sort of like almost like diving deep underground kind of thing um, that, you know, it's kind of got this bit of sort of not psychedelic, but kind of like atmospheric um, moodiness to it at the end as well. And I, you know, I, I, for me, it was always like these songs all belong together as one thing, even though they kind of go everywhere. But they've all got like similar um, sonic, you know, sort of attributes and they're all recorded by the same person. We use similar guitar amps and they're all written around the same time. So, I'm hoping that they still feel like it still feels fluid, although it does, you know, sort of dip its toes in different directions in terms of like, there's punk stuff, there's indie stuff, there's, you know, more leaning in metal, there's, you know, bluesy stuff on there. But it all should feel like a cohesive thing, hopefully. It all takes place in that kind of Mad Maxian world on the cover. That's right, yeah. Just a lot of different characters within it. Yeah, I think when we had, like, we got um, Lee to, to make that record, the record cover for us, we sort of had the idea that, um, of doing the, 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 you know, it's day to night over the two records. So it's this sort of full picture, and it sort of get as it, it's you know it doesn't it, it can be anything like you know there's you know we're in both covers, but on one of them we're like illuminated, and the other one we're sort of normal, just like you know in our clothes and stuff, and it's a bit of a chaos scene. It feels like things are like the sun's shining but then there's lightning and it's like i don't know it was it was supposed to be just like it's 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 a, an immersive thing if you're in this world of of anything could happen but it's all a little bit kind of chaotic and and going down but it's also beautiful <laughs> it's like you know i feel like we got a to touch on the positive rising grant quickly yeah before we go are applications for that still open, or what's the? No, no, we've we ha- we've, no. we we picked our um our winners for, for this year, and um yeah, it's awesome, man. It was like so um heartening to like to go and and read all these applications from kids out there. It was like you know we did it for um, regional people from regional centres here in Australia, and it was awesome. We've got like Fender, who you know we're endorsed with, but they've been such a great force here in Australia in terms of like just helping bands out but then getting on board with this and helping out kids and getting guitars in hand so that people can learn but yeah reading through those applications just seeing all the um, passion behind future guitarists um, like they knew so much more about guitar than I did when I was their age Um and interestingly enough, like a lot of the, like, you know, who's your favorite guitarist, you know, a lot of people were just were doing throwbacks to stuff that maybe my, you know, like people I didn't even know and I have to look them up and I was like, oh, wow, it's like a blues player. So, uh, people. I think like, I think I'd go like Zappa, I would love to go and have a look again. I think it's Zappa and, and then going back even like people, some people I was like, I don't even know who that is. And they're just these old like shredders who you know, from the seventies and I was like, wow, my, you know, my favorite guitarist when I was a kid was like Matt Bellamy. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, that's, that was like my knowledge of guitar was like, he was like, wow, Tom Morello was like my, you know, that those guys were like, like oh, I love him. Or Nick Zinner, you know, like these are like the other people I was super. Oh, great guitarist. Yeah, I know. But they were so much more of the time. Like I was like, oh, that was people that were still, I was listening to their records, but then these kids had all these favorite guitarists who were like really old. I think maybe their parents kind of got them onto them and stuff. Um, and it was just interesting to see, you know, it's just to see that there, there's kids out there who had like heaps of knowledge of um, of music and, and, and like were just passionate about guitar. And I think the best thing about it really is that constantly over the last sort of 10 years 
in media you see so much about guitar rocket like guitar bands are dead or like that's that world's over it's all production and it's like yeah it's it's production but then you're starting to see like a lot of guitars get used again in like hip-hop or then there's like artists like oliver tree who use guitars with beats and then you know his own style and like that's really popular or then you know, like the sort of more indie world, which is, is you know, there's lots of synths and stuff, but it's like guitars are a big primary thing in it as well. So, I think that there is, and especially now with like the the last year, well, it's given some people a lot of time to go and learn an instrument and maybe it's something that they've always wanted to do is to play guitar. So, yeah, the more people out there playing music, the better, no matter what instrument. But, yeah, it's just nice to see that people are, super psyched on, on, on playing guitar still. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.